0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: NATO has always been a defensive alliance and uh, Russia could have joined it at one point. That's gone now. And uh, really, it's, it's, uh, Russia is pushing itself away from Europe, away from, from the West as a whole, toward China.
2: Hi there, this is Tom Switzer, and you're on Between the Lines. And that was John Bolton, President Trump's National Security Advisor and a US Ambassador to the United Nations in President George W. Bush's administration. Russia has now invaded Ukraine, and the crisis intensifies. And John Bolton says that Washington must take on the China-Russia Entente, It's tighter today than at any time since de-Stalinization split the communist world six decades ago. John Bolton is author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. I spoke to John Bolton just hours before the Russian invasion. Hello there, John. Hey, Tom. How are you? Glad to be back with you. What do you think the Russian leader wants? I think he has two
1: strategic objectives. First, he wants to reestablish Russian hegemony over the space of the former Soviet Union and and maybe even sovereignty over additional parts of it. Uh, And second, he wants to split NATO, uh, in his mind – uh, a weaker NATO is a stronger Russia. Uh, I think at this moment, he still has the initiative and the momentum. Don't know exactly what he's going to do. Uh, he may not either because he's trying to achieve as much as he can
2: and minimize the cost. A split NATO. Now, he, has he effectively realized his principal goal here that Ukraine never become a NATO member?
1: Well, I think he had done that actually in twenty fourteen by by annexing the Crimea and inserting forces into the Donbass. You know NATO has never admitted a country that's uh, got foreign troops on its soil because that would be admitting somebody that was actually at war, technically. So these frozen conflicts that uh, Russia has established around its former the former territory of the Soviet Union, has effectively done that, and uh, sadly, we've let it happen over a long period of
2: time. Now, a rule of diplomacy is to sometimes try to put yourself in your opponent's shoes and look at the world from their perspective. Now, bearing that in mind, John, and with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism three decades ago, why did Washington move its Cold War alliance onto Moscow's front porch?
1: Well, I, I don't think that's what NATO did. You know, when the Warsaw Pact collapsed, And then subsequently, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, countries that had been captive nations, as we said, rightly so in the Cold War, uh, were pounding on NATO's door to let them in. And uh, I think we were right to do it. I think these were free people who wanted to be free. They'd been crushed by the Germans in one war and crushed by the Russians uh, during the Cold War. Uh, And they wanted security. And NATO and the United States could provide that security. NATO from its inception right up until this very moment is and has been a defensive alliance, and I don't think that will ever change. So uh, the, the, the error that NATO did make was never really coming to a conclusion when its expansion would stop, because whatever that point was going to be, uh, that would be a zone for Russia to cause trouble and uh, we're in that period exactly now we should have faced it expressly 10 or 20 years ago and made the hard decisions then and i think our failure to do that has led to the ambiguity that vladimir putin is trying to exploit today
2: but if you go back to the mid to late 1990s the clinton years we worked together at the american enterprise institute this was the beginning of the great debate over nato expansion and two leading intellectual architects of the Cold War doctrine of containment, George Kennan and Paul Nitzer, they made it very clear that Russia has legitimate security interests in its near abroad. And 25 years later, that might explain why Putin is playing hardball to protect those interests. John Bolton.
1: But we tried to convince Russia to grow closer to NATO. We did not see, and I don't believe today, that our security interests are really adverse to Russia. Uh, But that effort failed because there was so much rejoicing, triumphalism really, in the end of history, remember the end of history, that uh, you didn't have to worry about such things. So I think we squandered the opportunity. I think, by the way, this proves there's no inevitable progress in human affairs because Russia had the flash, the potential for, democratic rule in the 1990s, and now it's lost it for the foreseeable
2: future. The Russians would come back to you and ask, would Washington ever tolerate a great power forming a military alliance with another country in the Western Hemisphere, much less on its border?
1: Well, sadly, we have. The Russians have been in Cuba since the early 1960s. Uh, They're in Venezuela today. They support Nicaragua. These are mistakes we've made. But again, I would say this. uh, NATO has always been a defensive alliance and uh, Russia could have joined it at one point. That's gone now. And uh, really, it's it's uh, Russia is pushing itself away from Europe, away from from the West as a whole toward China.
2: Okay, now to resolve this crisis, some critics, such as the Republican Senator Josh Hawley, they suggest that Washington should just rule out Ukraine becoming part of NATO and just put this in writing.
1: No, I think that's a clear mistake. Uh, The principle of NATO from the beginning has been that NATO membership was up to the governments of the countries that wanted to apply, and the decision lay with the people who were already members. We've held that principle open for decades for Sweden and Finland, and I think we should hold it open for Ukraine and others as well. Uh, This is something about uh, people being able to decide their own interests and not having it decided by somebody else.
2: Your old boss, President Trump, and many of his supporters like Senator Josh Hawley, they'd say that this NATO expansion just amounts to a lengthening series of US war guarantees to fight Russia on behalf of nations on the other side of the globe?
1: Well, you know, uh, Europe's not on the other side of the globe uh, from the United States, and it has been a fundamental premise of American policy since 1945 that security and stability in Europe are a vital American interest. And precisely that principle is being challenged today by Russia. Obviously, Ukraine's not a NATO member, but it follows inexorably that NATO itself can be affected by uh, military aggression uh, on the continent of Europe. And that's what we're seeing. This is going to lead, I fear, to a period of greater instability in Europe, uh, and that will
2: harm the United States. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guest is John Bolton, a major player in Republican administrations, Reagan, Bush Sr., Bush Jr., and Trump. Now, writing in the Wall Street Journal recently, you took issue with the the view that opposing China's existential threat to the West requires reducing or even withdrawing US support elsewhere. And uh, you made the point that the, the, the United States really faces this entente. Now, intriguingly, our Prime Minister, John Scott Morrison, just this week sought to link Russia and China as the new axis of aggression, they're his words, that threatens global and regional hegemony. You call it an entente. The prime minister calls it calls it an axis. What's the difference?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I say good for Scott Morrison because I think I think he's got the basic point. I think it's uh, you know I hate to use a French diplomatic term, but I think it's more of an entente <laughs> because it's... Because at this stage, it's more informal. I do fear it could grow into an axis, and, and that could happen very quickly. The, the irony here is China is and will be the senior partner. The reverse of the Cold War years, obviously, when the Soviet Union was the senior partner. But it is a threat, and it magnifies, each magnifies the power of the other. China in the Indo-Pacific, Russia in Europe, and both of them in the Middle East.
2: Now, your Trump administration colleague, Elbridge Colby, was a guest on this program last week, and he makes the point that the U.S. focus on Ukraine and Eastern Europe, and by the way, Iran in the Persian Gulf, he argues that just distracts attention from the main game. And this is crucial for Australia, John. That's China, which genuinely threatens the stability and the peace of Asia, according to Colby. Now, his argument is the U.S. needs to discriminate and reorder priorities away from Europe and the Middle East and towards East Asia. He takes aim at you. This is Bridge Colby.
3: I think John Bolton is, is, is perhaps one of the leading architects of the policies that have got us to the Sari impasse, which is an overly aggressive, overly expansive conception of our role in the world. We are in this position because people like Bolton and those who he's associated with expended enormous amounts of money, military power, and political will there, there was a lot of political support in the United States for those wars, and it was frittered away. And now there is questions about whether, fundamental questions about whether Americans should come, should be involved in the world. And I'm, I take a position that we should, but that, th- th- those are the, pe- you know, it's similar to like a Robert Kagan, who's talking about Taiwan. I mean, these are the people, Bill Kristol, these are the people have, who really have led us, they, they've had their hand on the till for a long time. And that's, this is why, where, why we are where we are.
2: That's the former Trump Assistant Deputy Defense Secretary, Bridge Colby, on between the lines last week. Let's hear from another Trump official, John Bolton.
1: Well, look, uh, I have said repeatedly that China is the existential threat for the United States in the 21st century. There's no uh, debate about that. But the idea that the United States can't walk and chew gum at the same time is just wrong. Look, Look at history. You know, on December the 7th, 1941, Uh, We had a much smaller capability after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor than we did at the beginning of the day, and it was very small then. It's too bad the U.S. lost World War II because we couldn't find the resources to deal with both Germany and Japan. Obviously, we did. After World War II, there was an excellent idea to reconstruct Europe, to to repair the damage of World War II and to fend off uh, Soviet aggression. But... You know, resources were limited. Congress couldn't appropriate the money, and there was no Marshall Plan. Uh, in the 1960s, there was a space race, but Congress didn't want to appropriate the money then, and Russia made it to the moon first and now owns the moon. And in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan had great plans to significantly increase defense spending, had new concepts like uh, missile defense, but uh, we didn't have the resources for that. You know, the Cold War continues to this day. It's just,
2: silly. But Colby would argue, and he's not alone, and this is a view on the left and the right in Washington, on the margins at least, given the debacles in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, since the 9-11 terror attacks, aren't there very real limits imposed on US power in a world that John is no longer unipolar?
1: The United States certainly has had failures of leadership. The withdrawal from Afghanistan by the Biden administration, and it would have been by the Trump administration, Uh, was a debacle. And we are facing negative consequences from that. But this idea that you can be stronger by withdrawing or or, uh, repositioning from Europe and the Middle East is simply false. China will expand there as well. America's withdrawal from Afghanistan has left a strategic vacuum in Central Asia that China and Russia will fill. Uh, The fact is this Entente, or Axis, as your Prime Minister calls it, between Russia and China, uh, makes each of them stronger in their own areas. You cannot abandon uh, one important interest and expect that uh, you'll be able to do better elsewhere. Your opponents will simply exploit the weakness that you've demonstrated.
2: Okay, finally this week, 50 years ago in Shanghai, February 1972, uh, Nixon and Kissinger essentially declared Taiwan to be part of China. Now, here's the question. If America is not prepared to fight for Ukraine in Russia's sphere of influence, why would you go to war with China to defend the independence of Taiwan in China's sphere of influence? John Bolton.
1: Well, we wouldn't. That's the problem with the idea that you can uh, dismiss Ukraine or not care about Israel and it won't affect China. Xi Jinping is watching what's happening in Ukraine now with an eagle eye. And if he discerns American weakness, if we look like another failure, as we did in Afghanistan, he will apply that lesson to Taiwan. It's tough being uh, the, the uh, dominant power in the world. And we may not be the unipolar power, but we are still the only country with worldwide interest and worldwide capabilities. And if we do not lead, if we do not rise to the occasion, uh, then whatever minimal order there is in the world that we've helped provide with our system of alliance since 1945, will collapse. So the burden is you... on us. There's no doubt about it.
2: And John, are you confident that America would fight and die for Taiwan? Again, here's Elbridge Colby.
3: I can't predict. What I will say is I do believe the American people understand the threat from China and I do believe they will support wars that they think are in their interests. And fighting for Taiwan is not about Taiwan. I wish the we people of Taiwan well, but this is about America's interests. And America does not want China to dominate the world's largest market area because we will suffer accordingly, as will Australia and Japan and Taiwan and Europe and others. But I think they will be if there's a good strategy and if we husband our resources. And again, this is where the John Boltons of the world are so poisonous to good strategy and successful foreign policy outcomes is we need to make sure that we're not even close to losing in the primary theater and this frittering away of our hard power all around the world, Venezuela, Iran, name your Cuba, is going to lead to a much greater likelihood of war and defeat uh, over Taiwan.
2: That's former Trump administration official Bridge Colby on this program last week, John Bolton.
1: I think this has gotta be an important debate in the United States right now, uh, despite those who say China is the most important threat and it is, uh, I don't think there's support For Taiwan any more than than there is for Ukraine. And saying, well, I don't want to do this. I'd rather do that. Doesn't make us stronger. It makes us weaker.
2: John, thanks as always for being on ABC Radio.
1: Okay, Tom, take care now. Bye-bye.
2: And that was John Bolton, President Trump's National Security Advisor and a U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in President George W. Bush's administration. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines, I'm Tom Switzer. And still to come, a week that changed the world. Evelyn Go takes us back 50 years to Richard Nixon's historic visit to China and explains why he went. And up next, Parnell McGuinness on why she's had enough of misogynistic attacks on conservative women. Well, women in the political arena have long complained about unequal treatment and blatant sexism and over time people everywhere have all expressed their concern and pledged to address and improve the situation but when it comes to verbal attacks on women on the conservative side of politics is there a double standard parnell McGuinness is a columnist and communications advisor and she joins me now to discuss her recent sydney morning herald column it's titled enough is enough the political left's misogynistic attacks must end hello there parnell great to have you on between the lines
0: such a pleasure to be here now
2: wonderful now you write that you've had enough what is it precisely that you're sick of
0: what i am sick of and what many women on the conservative side of politics are sick of is the double standard that is applied where women on the left appear to be protected from the kind of vile abuse that happens to many women online, but conservative women somehow don't deserve the same protection. In fact, they're often the subject of abuse by the left, and as I wrote in my column, sometimes by both left-wing men and left-wing women.
2: Yes, well, this is a very important point you make. I mean, these attacks, you say, aren't just coming from, you know, angry and disturbed men trolling from their basements, but mainstream women on the progressive side of politics.
0: That's right. That's right. And it, that's, I think, a part that really makes it, really sharpens the effect of this, is that these are women who would fight tooth and nail to insist that women should be protected from this kind of poor behaviour. In fact, that's what feminism has been about, is allowing women to take a full and equal part in society and not be subject to this kind of gendered abuse. So they will stick up for it on their own side of politics. But then when it comes to applying it to conservative women, often they will either stand by and say nothing, or worse still participate and level it at the conservative women themselves.
2: Yes, we'll get to the Nicole Flint example soon enough, but tell me more about the suggestion that women are cynically being used as, quote, human shields. What's happening there?
0: I really take exception to this notion. So this was put forward in a in another column in the Sydney Morning Herald, and the idea is that women are used by men to hide their bad behaviour and that by putting a woman forward, it would somehow excuse what the men had done. Now, I'm sure that that can happen in some circumstances, but the idea that every conservative woman who sticks up for a man is somehow a human shield is deeply, deeply offensive. Because of course that means that you could never argue your own opinion as it pertains to a man, because that would somehow be seen as shielding a man, doing his bidding, and being a human shield
2: yes i suppose the prime minister's wife uh, jenny morrison supporting her husband that's a case in point right
0: (laughs) that's right well she was accused (laughs) of being a human shield because she participated in a channel 9 show meet the morrisons you know a bit hokey but look this woman has been married to the prime minister for 30 years and been together with him for longer If she has a negative assessment of his character, then I am sure she would not have stuck around. That is a testament in itself (laughs) to what she thinks of him. Whether she's right or wrong is another matter, but that's not the point. She is not being used as a human shield. She is married to him and has chosen to participate in a show which shows a little bit about them as a family.
2: Another example, the Liberal Senator Holly Hughes from New South Wales. Now she offered support for her Liberal colleague Alan Tudge. She copped it too, didn't she?
0: She did, she did. And it was it was a really murky exchange that she had um, with the with Alan Tudge's accuser, his former media mm-hmm. advisor on Twitter. Now Twitter is never a great place to engage with these sorts of things. And uh, and Holly uh, um, did use well a, sort of, <laughs> absolutely. And Holly did use a term which, you know, she she expressed it as I stand with Tadji. Now that is sort of that is pretty standard Twitter sort of fair. But mm. she explains herself very articulately when asked further about that, pointing out that she thinks that it's dangerous territory when people can lose their jobs, careers or lives over unsubstantiated clients. That's how she expressed it. And once again, she got accused of being a human shield rather than having an opinion for saying so.
2: If you just tuned in, you're on RNs Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer and my guest is Parnell McGuinness. She's a communications advisor and columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald. And indeed, we're talking about her recent column, Enough is Enough the political left's misogynistic attacks must end. Parnell, politics is adversarial. It's rowdy, it's polarizing. It requires the thickest of skins. It's a brutal business. Don't politicians on both sides and of both genders give as good as they take?
0: And they should. So nobody expects politics to suddenly become a nice game of civility and good behavior. Of course, politics is rough and tumble. And of course, everybody needs to have a thick skin women included. But we can make an exception for the extreme gendered abuse that women receive. So men don't receive the same kind of abuse. And this is not about fighting over ideas. This is about women being sidelined and abused in ways that can push them out of a, of a career in politics through fear for their own safety or sometimes that of their children. And now I don't believe that that is acceptable. Men do not cop the same type of abuse, certainly not the rape threats, certainly not the the types of accusations that they are having an affair with their colleagues or that it's only because of their sexual favours that they are making progress in their career.
2: And that brings us to Nicole Flint. I mean, the the criticism that she's caught from the left. She made her valedictory speech in Parliament uh, in the last uh, few weeks. And just tell us about her predicament, Parnell.
0: Yes, look, Nicole Flint has had a terrible time of it. In the 2019 yeah. election, so clear, she the was... Out,
2: the outgoing Liber- so just to be clear, she's the outgoing liberal federal Liberal MP for the Adelaide seat of Boothby. And tell the story. Sorry, Parnell.
0: She, during the 2019 election, when she was running to be re-elected in that seat, copped really vile abuse, including being stalked her office was targeted, she was targeted with abuse, she was followed around, it really intimidating and she's very shaken by it. So she will, you know, when she talks about it, she is still very emotional, which is why she unusually chose to make it the subject of her valedictory speech.
2: And Nicole Flint's response is that the way to fix this is for the leaders on the left, Labor leaders, to rein in their supporters. But where are they? Are they doing this?
0: No, they're not. And partly that is, of course, because there are people within the the, the more general left who do act as independent actors who sort of pursue the, or the election of the Labor government through rallying supporters around the cause using these abusive sort of platforms and, and ways of approaching politics. They therefore, the leaders therefore wash their hands of any responsibility for that because it's not happy, it's not them doing it. But of course, it's being done in the pursuit of electing a Labor government. So, Nicole Flint's point is the leaders on the left have to explicitly say this is not something we support, we do not support the treatment of women like this. And if they don't, say that then we have to assume that it's okay that they think that it is okay for conservative women to be treated in a way that they would never accept a woman on their own side to be treated
2: What about the experience of Julia Banks, the one-time Liberal MP for the Victorian seat of Chisholm? Now, she was seen by many on the left as a crusader for women's rights in politics. Now, she was, she claimed, subjected to harassment by Liberal men when they were lobbying her to vote for, I think, Peter Dutton against Malcolm Turnbull in the Liberal Party room ballot, uh, as if this doesn't happen a lot in politics. I mean, why was she treated differently by much of the left-leaning media, why was she treated differently to, say, Nicole Flint, Parnell McGuinness?
0: Look, I think that, of course, the, the main reason why she was treated differently is because she was seen she was pitting, pitting herself against the Conservative government as a result of this um, time, which was very fraught. And look, I have no doubt that Julia Banks was treated quite robustly and, and probably not very well by a lot of the men who she was dealing with at the time, remembering that she was, of course, very closely aligned with Turnbull, who had brought her in from outside of politics, just like he was sort of less of a machine sort of person. And so she was in this very, very fraught time. She was being lobbied, bullied, and pressured by men who wanted her to behave in a certain way that suited their factional sh- factional aims. Now, I think that it is important that we recognise that that sort of behaviour beha- takes place in politics, and that frankly, I don't think it's, it's acceptable. I think that this is a different form of toxicity that has come into our politics, that the factional dealings have become almost more important than the ideas that, that are behind the political parties but it is a different thing entirely. And the reason that she didn't get, the reason that she was defended by the left was of course, because she was calling out bad behavior by men in the Liberal Party. And so therefore she's been elevated as a crusader.
2: Well, the article's called Enough is Enough. The political left's misogynistic attacks must end. That's in the Sydney Morning Herald, February 20. It's Parnell McGuinness, communications advisor, columnist. Parnell, great to have you on Between the Lines.
0: Thank you so much. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
2: Well, this week marks 50 years since this.
1: That communique will make headlines around the world tomorrow. But what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead we have been here a week this was the week that changed the
2: world that's president richard nixon's opening to communist china widely praised as a great act of statesmanship and widely regarded as the most significant and prudent u.s foreign policy initiative since the creation of nato it was according to nixon's national security advisor henry kissinger it transformed the structure of international politics Now the China opening was also one of the greatest political U-turns in history. You see, Nixon's political career had been defined by his relentless opposition to communism.
1: The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for freedom, freedom from hunger, from disease, and a victory for the ageless hope of people everywhere, freedom from tyranny.
2: In the early 1950s, a young Senator Nixon endorsed Joe McCarthy's charge that treasonous U.S. government officials had lost China by abandoning Chinese nationalists against the Chinese communists. In 1960, in a televised presidential debate with John F. Kennedy, Nixon declared,
1: Now what do the Chinese communists want? They don't want just Kimoy and Matsu. They don't want just Formosa. They want the world.
2: Formosa being what we now call Taiwan." And in the mid 1960s, as a private citizen, Nixon warned that, quote, appeasement of red China in Vietnam would lead to World War III. But suddenly the circumstances changed. The Sino-Soviet split, the Vietnam conflict, the elite and public doubts about that war. All this provided Tricky Dick, with a wet finger to the wind, with an opportunity to do a vault farce. Nixon now. Nixon now. now you may have heard the term, only Nixon could go to China. That's right. Only a red-baiting anti-communist Republican, only a cold warrior, could do something that would have been out of reach for a soft left liberal Democrat. And so the phrase, only Nixon could go to China, that became part of the political lexicon. It describes a moment when a political leader defies expectations by doing something that would anger his supporters if taken by someone without his credentials. So. Only Nixon could go to China, as he did 50 years ago.
1: I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. Many lives, of course, were lost in building it because there was no machinery or equipment at the time. It had to all be done by hand. Uh, But uh, under the circumstances, it uh, is a certainly symbol of what China in the past has been and what China in the future can become.
2: But intriguingly, get a load of this. This is fascinating. Before his death in 1994, Nixon told the legendary New York Times columnist, William Sapphire about his great China lament. You see, Nixon was asked whether the West has overstated the political benefits of increased trade with China, to which Nixon replied with some sadness, that he was not as hopeful as he'd once been. He said, quote, we may have created a Frankenstein. Well, to mark the 50th anniversary of Nixon's opening to China, and to help put it in its proper historical context, I'm delighted to be joined by Evelyn Go. She's the Shedden Professor of Strategic Policy Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra, although today she joins us from Singapore. She's author of Constructing the US Reproachment with China, it's 1961 to 74, From Red Menace to Tacit Ally, as published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to RN, Evelyn.
4: Absolute pleasure to be with you, Tom. Thank you for for the invitation.
2: Oh, it's our pleasure. Let's start by placing February 1972 in a broader context. Tell us about the nature of Sino-American relations after the Communist Revolution in 1949.
4: It would be right to say that U.S. relations with the People's Republic of China began inauspiciously, right? The dust had barely settled after the communist victory on the mainland in late 1949, when that war broke out on the Korean peninsula in June 1950. Now, that Korean war eventually pitted Chinese communist soldiers against U.S.-led U.N. forces, so for the next 30 years, from 1949, 1950 onwards, what we have is US relations with China, which were formally conducted with the nationalist regime of the Republic of China on Taiwan. vis communist China on the mainland, US policy from the Eisenhower administration to the Johnson administration spanning the 50s and the 60s was one of simultaneous diplomatic isolation and military strategic containment. Mm. So during this period, what we had was a severance of trade, travel, any sort of exchange, really, um, as well as, you know, the use of U.S. alliances and bases in East Asia to contain China, We also saw, of course, you know, crises, repeated crises on the Taiwan Straits, occasional threats of nuclear attack on China um, from the United States. And eventually in the 1960s, another hot war, a proxy war fought against Chinese Communist-backed North Vietnam. So really, between 49 and 70, U.S. antagonism towards China was very much situated within that framework of the Cold War. Except, of course, in Asia, the Cold War was not cold. It was resolutely rather hot.
2: The Australian Hmm. government during this period, unlike Britain, we did not recognise communist China. But unlike Washington, we still (laughs) traded uh, with China, mainly uh, wheat and wool, to mainland China. Now, you're talking about the 50s and 60s, this is really the height of the Cold War, particularly in Asia, as you just said. Tell us about the role that Richard Nixon played here. Now he, first as a Republican congressman in the mid to late 1940s, then a senator in the early 50s, and then of course, Dwight Eisenhower's vice president throughout the 1950s, and then as a private citizen in the 60s. What kind of role did Nixon play in the US-China policy debates during this period?
4: Yes, I mean, you know, when when Nixon became president by winning the election, right, in 69, um, he was by no means, you know, a novice to the game, right? He'd had, as you said already, that vast experience. Most importantly, you know, he had been Eisenhower's vice president and running mate um, in two campaigns and served two terms, right? Um, And I guess what's slightly less well-known Um, is that Nixon had a long prior engagement with foreign policy that was really unusual for a presidential candidate. In his case, this also included familiarity and quite a lot of engagement with U.S. policy in Asia and specifically towards China. He, as Eisenhower's vice president in the 50s, he actually had proposed more pragmatic trade policy and arms control talks with China, Right. Like Eisenhower himself, Nixon was in favor of opening trade with China, both as a way to drive a wedge between the PRC and the Soviets, but also as a way to drive a wedge between the Chinese public and the Chinese Communist Party by allowing what what they thought of as Chinese junks to sail to Japan to fill up with everything they could buy. Right. So you know but during this time though the powerful china lobby in the united states essentially the lobby that lobbied in favor of the Republic of China and against Communist China. Um, you call it a China the...
2: lobby, but it was really the Taiwan lobby, it wasn't really, it? Really,
4: yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes, but, but you know, China was the ROC at that time, so mm-hmm. it was the China mm-hmm. lobby. Um was so powerful that these policy options were really sort of never put into practice because there was no political room, you know, for Eisenhower and Nixon's preferences to be put into action.
2: Okay, so this period here, Red China, as the People's Republic was often derided as, Red China, self-evidently, it's, it's America's most implacable enemy in the 50s and 60s. And you make this clear in your excellent book, Evelyn. This is the height of the Cold War. I suppose the question now is, how then did China become America's friend and tacit ally after, of all people, Nixon became president? <laughs> I know.
4: Um that that you know that the how question was really the question I tried to address in that book. You know, we often ask the why question, and then we answer the why question by saying, well, the geopolitics changed and then it made sense, right? But even if the geopolitics changed, there's still that fundamental how, right? How did we get this China that was perceived as nothing but a red menace, right? The most threatening power on the landscape? How did it, you know, how did perceptions manage to move from that, you know, to allow Nixon's radical reversal to happen? Um, and I suppose we have to kind of start this story by looking at some of the internal and also eventually public debates in the United States about how to think about China, right? Because the roots of a lot of Um, The rethinking really began then in the 1960s. In the book, I, you know, I I go through the debates and I sort of narrow it down and simplify it into this argument that, you know, that there really were sort of four distinct um, points of view or images, if you like, of China in that debate in the 60s. One was the one we're very familiar with, right? The Red Menace. It was a Soviet ally, it was totalitarian, aggressive, expansionist, you know, and it was essentially a growing threat, uh, yoked in with the Soviet threat. Um, and that of course was what we began with from the 1950s. But I argue that as the 1960s wore on and the sino Soviet split became more fierce, we get the rise of an alternative image of china almost still still an antagonistic still an antagonistic one but one that is much more emphasized china's independent identity in opposition to the soviet union so this image was one of china as a revolutionary rival really a more militant version of communism Right. And with more emphasis on revolutionary warfare, which in the growing context of the Vietnam War, was seen as particularly important for the United States. So China and the revolutionary rival becomes a rival to Soviet influence um, within the developing and the communist world. So these two images are antagonistic still and quite orthodox. But most importantly, in the 1960s, we begin to see the rise of what I call revisionist um, discourses about China, two images in particular that challenged that orthodox um, presentation of communist China. One is this idea of China as a troubled modernizer, right? This sense that it was actually quite a weak developing country. It was very divided in its leadership between ideologues and other leaders who really wanted to modernize China. Now, of course, this sense of troubled modernizer really took off when, you know, the Great Leap Forward failed spectacularly, when the Cultural Revolution, right, sort of really set in, um, in, in the 1960s. So troubled modernizer was an image that really sort of Um, took hold because of those events as well at the same time there was another strain of revisionist thinking on china that presented it as a resurgent power right a rising international player and a traditional great power that had unfortunately become very frustrated by its historical humiliation and its current weakness but really was looking for sensitivity and appreciation and some sort of equal treatment from other world powers like the United States. Um, And so these revisionist ideas, I argue, um, become radically important when the moment comes for Nixon, you know, and others to rethink China policy from 1969 onwards.
2: Yeah, now the book is called Constructing the U.S. Reproachment with China, 61 to 74. I'm talking with the author, Evelyn Go. Now, those great debates in the 60s about reopening China relations, they weren't just confined to government and policymakers behind the scenes. They were also media and intellectual policy debates about the merits of opening up U.S. relations with China. This is, again, in the mid to late 60s. Where does Nixon fit in here, Evelyn? I mean, in the mid to late 60s, he's a private citizen, You document how he does travel to Asia every year for long trips where he engages with Asian leaders, and by the way, European leaders, including Charles de Gaulle, who encourages Nixon to reach out to China. This is in the mid-60s. So did Nixon during this period, I mean, to what extent did he catch the significance of this new China policy thinking across the United States?
4: Absolutely. He was active in this revisionism this wave of revisionism, Mm. very absolutely, right? And the 1960s is interesting for Nixon because he is out of office, right, for Mm. this period. Um, But because he was out of office, he was able to travel widely in Asia and he became a quite active advocate on a parallel track of a tougher Vietnam policy. Now, in his advocacy for a tougher Vietnam policy for the United States, he engaged with new strains of thinking about China. It was really in that context of thinking through how the US was going to strengthen um, and make more effective, you know, its 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 approach to the Vietnam War that he talked to people such as Francis Charles de Gaulle and Germany's Konrad Adenauer as well mm-hmm. about the China mm-hmm. question. And I guess the best encapsulation of this sort of Nixon's thinking comes out of his article in foreign affairs in 1967 when he drew on these thoughts to call famously for a firm containment of communist china yes but also adopting the long-term aim of pulling china back into international society in other words ending china's isolation
2: angry isolation that's right yes, yeah
4: absolutely yeah and that, and you know in 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 talking about you know, trying to avoid uh, leaving a billion of the world's most able people to live in angry isolation. He's really echoing Charles de Gaulle's thinking as well, who had put Mm -hmm, it that mm -hmm, way. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay, Okay, but let me just test your thesis here. You say that before Nixon became president, that these new views on China were percolating in not just the White House and the State Department and intelligence agencies, but also in the great intellectual debates. And you just made the point that Nixon himself, he wrote this prominent article in 1967, Foreign Affairs, Asia After Vietnam, putting forward the idea of opening up relations. But um, if the origins of this bilateral rapprochement precede Nixon as president, as you document in your book, why then was Nixon's announcement that he'd visit communist China to renormalize relations. Why was that such a massive shock in 71, 72? Evelyn go.
4: Well, you know, what I've documented is a series of debates, right? And it wouldn't be wrong to say that the revisionist ideas about China policy in the 1960s actually, you know, didn't get very far in terms of policy effect, right? We see a sort of snowballing and a gradual growing of a bit of a consensus on this idea that the current China policy couldn't continue. But the translation of that into actual policy change was deeply problematic, right? So that's the short answer to why it appeared to be radical when Nixon actually managed to put it into effect between 1971 and 1972, right? Um, two main reasons why policy change were not possible in the 1960s. The first very major, the most important reason was that China did not respond. Um, And I keep saying this, when we think about US-China relations, let's not forget the China part, right?
2: The Cultural Revolution, good point. Yeah,
4: well, you know, Mao Zedong had other things to do, to put it very shortly (laughs) briefly, right? So China (laughs) did not respond, particularly to several mild overtures Uh, by the Johnson administration. There was simply no response. Second reason for why there was no policy change in the 60s was because there was a quite severe limitation in purpose in what the Johnson administration was seeking in terms of these overtures to China. There were very small relaxations in bilateral trade and travel, you know, um, but it was not strategically conceived of. Right. Um, and what the Johnson revisionists were kind of hoping really to demonstrate was to shift what they called shift the monkey onto Peking's back, right? Really to demonstrate that even though the Johnson administration wanted to be flexible, it was actually the Chinese who were intransigent. Yeah. So that was kind of their purpose, right?
2: Yes. Um, yes. Those
4: two reasons policy change didn't go many places in the 1960s until Nixon came onto the scene.
2: Yeah, well, the conventional wisdom, Evelyn, is that only Nixon could go to China. And this is the argument, I mentioned this earlier in the program, that only a tough anti-communist with impeccable right-wing credentials, only such a person whose credibility with conservative Republicans would shield him away from domestic attack. Only Nixon could sup with Mao Tse-tung and become a peacemaker. Is that really a plausible argument given everything you've said in this interview? I guess I couldn't really
4: say everything in this interview, um, but let me peel apart the two <laughs> Well, your,
2: the- your thesis is basically <laughs> that these ideas were percolating in the United States in the 60s. So why then was it only Nixon who could go to China? I mean, if a Democrat were in president, were president in uh, 71, 72, could he or she have gone to China?
4: Yes, the answer is yes. And that. so let me tackle your really important question in two parts. First part is the proposition that only Nixon could have gone to China. The second part of the question is it took Nixon to open up the way he did. Okay, so I think those are two slightly different things. So let me take them in turn. Who could have gone to China? I don't agree. That only Nixon could have done it, for the main reason that Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, by this time, would have dealt with any U.S. leader, and the Democrats were ready to deal. Right. So throughout 1969, in fact, the biggest headache for Nixon was that leading Democrats were chomping at the bait to reach out, debating themselves. And Nixon was quite seriously worried that a Democrat was going to get to Beijing before he did. Senator Mike Mansfield kept writing to the Chinese and even to Cambodian Peace uh, Prince Seanuk, offering to travel as the American envoy to Peking to meet with Zhou Enlai to improve relations and to solve the Vietnam War. Senator Ted Kennedy pushed to set up consular missions in China as a prelude to diplomatic ties. Senator William Fulbright, who chaired the Foreign Relations Committee, asked for ministerial talks to be resumed with the PRC. So the Democrats were awfully active. And Mao himself specifically told Nixon in February seventy-two, while Nixon was in China, that the Chinese would have to conduct talks with the Democrats if they were to win the upcoming elections. So, you know, the Chinese would have talked to anybody at this point. Second part of your question, though, is that, to take it a bit further, I think that it took Nixon, though, to open up to China the way he did. The supping with Mao, the Shanghai communique, you know, the mm-hmm. perceived abandonment of Taiwan, mm-hmm. the shock to mm-hmm. Japan. It took Nixon to do that to it that way. Uh... He could absorb the initial blow from the domestic conservatives because of his conservative credentials. He and Kissinger had managed bureaucratic politics in such a way as to sideline the State Department, which otherwise would have stymied the secretive process and the postponement of allied concerns right from the beginning, right? But note also, of course, that it was precisely the conservative cover and these personal and functional characteristics of Nixon and Kissinger that also led to the way you know, this opening slid into a tacit alliance with China by 1970.
2: Well, look, it's a fascinating thesis. And on this program, we like to challenge conventional wisdoms. And you've done that in this book. It's widely believed, Evelyn, that your book marks a major advance from the available literature on this important international turning point. I'll conclude with this. This is the veteran Washington Asia policy insider, Robert Sutter. Now, in 2005, he called the book, quote, an admirably thorough and clearly presented assessment of a wide range of recently declassified material. Evelyn, thanks so much for enlightening RN listeners on the 50th anniversary of Nixon's trip to China.
4: It's my absolute pleasure, Tom.
2: Thank you so much. That's ANU Professor Evelyn Goh. The book is called Constructing the US Reproachment with China, 1961 to 1974. Well, that's it for the show this week. And remember, if you'd like to hear past episodes, including my exchange with Elbridge Colby on why the obsession with Ukraine just distracts America from the main game, China, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines or, of course, just download the show's podcast on the ABC's Listen app. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Thanks for tuning in.